Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast. Today is episode number 39, and we're asking the question, does God still speak in dreams and visions? And this is going to be a two-part episode, maybe even a three-part, because it's a pretty complicated question. In our Bible readings for today, as we follow the Robert Murray McShane plan, we will begin with Job chapter 7. In that passage, Job is crying out in anguish and the deep bitterness of a crushed and wounded spirit. It's honest, it's powerful, it's bracing, it's nearly hopeless, man, and it just hits you right in the gut. One of Job's complaints is that when he tries to escape his pain by sleeping or napping, God sends him haunting dreams and visions, or at least he assumes it's from God. I think from our perspective, we realize it's not from God at all, but it's from the enemy. And more on that in a moment. In Mark 11, we see Jesus coming into Jerusalem to give his life as a ransom for many. Before the crucifixion, though, he cleanses the temple of money changers and befuddles the chief priests, scribes, and elders of Jerusalem, uh, really debating them into silence. Romans 11 contains the implications of the rejection of Jesus that we're about to read about in the next few chapters of Mark. At the time of Romans 11, a few decades after the crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus had been rejected by the leaders of Israel. He'd been crucified. He'd been resurrected. He's ascended into heaven for several years. And Paul is writing in light of that rejection of the Savior. He's giving hope for the future for the Jews, including a tantalizing and very debated promise in Romans eleven twenty six, which which says, all Israel will be saved. Now, as we discussed yesterday, our focus today is on dreams and visions, and our focus passage is Genesis 41, which features Joseph interpreting dreams for Pharaoh and ultimately being elevated to a high place in the kingdom of Pharaoh. Dreams in general are a fairly frequently addressed phenomenon in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, mainly in the Old Testament, New Testament as well, and the word appears around 100 times in the Bible, maybe a little bit less than 100. After we read Genesis 41 together, we will have a brief discussion on the nature of dreams in the Bible and whether or not God still speaks that way. And this is Genesis 41, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. At the end of two years, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing beside the Nile when seven healthy-looking, well-fed cows came up from the Nile and began to graze among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, sickly and thin, came up from the Nile and stood beside those cows along the bank of the Nile. The sickly, thin cows ate the healthy, well-fed cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. Seven heads of grain, plump and good, came up on one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven plump, full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up, and it was only a dream. When morning came, he was troubled, so he summoned all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I remember my faults. Pharaoh was angry with his servants, and he put me and the chief baker in the custody of the captain of the guards. 
He and I had dreams on the same night. Each dream had its own meaning. Now a young Hebrew, a slave of the captains of the guards, was with us there. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted our dreams for us, and each had its own interpretation. It turned out just the way he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes, and went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I have heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. I am not able to, Joseph answered Pharaoh. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile when seven well-fed, healthy-looking cows came up from the Nile and grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, weak, very sickly, and thin, came up. I have never seen such sickly ones as these in all the land of Egypt. Then the thin, sickly cows ate the first seven well-fed cows. When they had devoured them, you could not tell that they had devoured them. Their appearance was as bad as it had been before. Then I woke up. In my dream I also saw seven heads of grain, full and good, coming up on one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain withered, thin, scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed the seven good ones. I told this to the magicians, but no one can tell me what it meant. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams mean the same thing. The seven thin, sickly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven worthless, scorched heads of grain are seven years of famine. It is just as I told Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. After them, seven years of famine will take place, and all the abundance in the land of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will devastate the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because of the famine that follows it, for the famine will be very severe. Since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God, and he will carry it out soon. So now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint overseers over the land and take a fifth of the harvest of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all of the excess food during those good years that are coming. Under Pharaoh's authority, store the grain in the city so they may preserve it as food. The food will be a reserve for the land during the seven years of famine that will take place in the land of Egypt. Then the country will not be wiped out by the famine. And the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and he said to them, Can we find anyone like this, a man who has God's spirit in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house, and all my people will obey your commands. Only I, as king, will be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, See, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments, and placed a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in his second chariot, and his servants called out before him, Make way! So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, 
I am Pharaoh, and no one will be able to raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt without your permission. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphinath Paniah, and gave him a wife, Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of Om. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was thirty years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph left Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout the land of Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced outstanding harvest. Joseph gathered all the excess food in the land of Egypt during the seven years and put it in the cities. He put the food in every city from the fields around it. So Joseph stored up grain in such abundance, like the sand of the sea, that he stopped measuring it because it was beyond measure. Two sons were born to Joseph during the years of famine arrived. Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh and said, God has made me forget all my hardship and my whole family. And the second son he named Ephraim and said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in every land, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When the whole land of Egypt was stricken with famine, the people cried out to Pharaoh for food, and Pharaoh told all Egypt, Go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. Now the famine had spread across the whole region, so Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Every land came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, for the famine was severe in every land. So looking at a survey of dreams and visions in the Bible, the first clear time that God speaks to somebody in a dream in the Bible appears to occur in Genesis chapter 20, when God has a conversation with King Abimelech. Jacob and Laban also have dreams with, you know, great spiritual significance and communication in there. And it really could be argued that the incident that happened when God and Abraham struck covenant a cut a covenant in Genesis chapter 15, you could say that some of that occurred during a dream because we're told that Abraham is asleep during some of that. Dreams would be a prominent feature in the life of Joseph, son of Jacob. He had multiple prophetic dreams in his youth and interpreted multiple prophetic dreams in his adulthood and continued having dreams. His brothers, when he was young, even sarcastically referred to him as an expert dreamer. Genesis thirty-seven nineteen. They they said to one another, "Oh look, here comes that dream expert." In Numbers, skipping ahead a couple of books, God tells the leaders of Israel that He Himself speaks to prophets via dreams and visions. And He also tells them, "I speak to Moses face to face, but when I speak to prophets, I speak via dreams and visions." We see this in Numbers chapter 12, verse 5. The Lord descended in a pillar of cloud, stood at the entrance to the tent, and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them came forward, he said, Listen to what I say. If there is a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. So God does confirm there that he does speak to his people, and especially prophets in dreams and visions, at least during the Old Testament, Old Covenant times. There's also a cautionary warning given in Deuteronomy 13, a few other places too, that there can and will be false prophets and false dreamers. So Deuteronomy 13 verse 1 says, If a prophet or someone who has dreams arises among you and proclaims a sign or wonder to you, and that sign or wonder he has promised you comes about, but he says, Let us follow other gods which you have not known and let us worship them, 
Do not listen to that prophet's words or to that dreamer. Jeremiah 23 has a very similar warning from God. Verse 24, can a person hide secret in, in secret places where I cannot see him? The Lord's declaration, do I not fill the heavens and the earth? I have heard what the prophets who prophesy a lie in my name have said. I had a dream. I had a dream. How long, says the Lord, will this continue in the minds of the prophets, prophesying lives, prophets of the deceit in their own minds? I am against those who prophesy false dreams, the Lord's declaration, telling them and leading my people astray with their reckless lies. It was not I who sent or commanded them, and they are of no benefit at all to the people. This is the Lord's declaration. So there were false prophets and false dreamers. You don't just take somebody's at their word that they are giving you a dream or word of the Lord. By the time of King Saul, it is apparent that one of God's obvious ways of guiding his people was through dreams. You can see that in places like 1 Samuel 28 when Samuel, I mean, sorry, when Saul is flummoxed because he can't get advice from Samuel anymore. Samuel is dead. God is not speaking to him through dreams or vision or any other ways. And 1 Samuel 28, 6 says, Saul inquired of the Lord, but the Lord did not answer him in dreams or by the Urim or by the prophets. Now, after the exile of Israel, we encounter a young man named Daniel, one of the few people in the Bible that there is nothing negative said about their life and no sinfulness is recorded. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Daniel was sinless, but it probably does mean he led an unusually righteous life. I note here that the two most prominent dreamers in the Bible, Joseph and Daniel, both led lives of exemplary righteousness and godliness. On the other hand, Jacob was also a big biblical dreamer, and he did not live a life of exemplary godliness. So we really can't make too many conclusions drawing a connection between dreaming uh, dreams from the Lord and walking in godliness and maturity. Daniel 1.17 introduces us to Daniel and says, God gave Daniel and his four young friends, uh, three young friends, knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. The prophet Joel gives us a tantalizing end times prophecy about dreams and dreamers in Joel chapter 2. And this is a, a verse that actually Peter refers to in Acts chapter 2 on the day of the birth of the church. Joel 2 verse 28 says, After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will have dreams and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. Just simply searching the word dream in a website like BibleGateway.com will show you that the vast majority of the occurrences of that word happen in the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean that people don't dream dreams from the Lord in the New Testament. In fact, God communicates with Joseph, father of Jesus, in a series of dreams, directing the Holy Family to safety during the early years of Jesus' life. God also speaks to the wise men in dreams and to Pilate's wife, warning her that her husband should not condemn the innocent Jesus. There's also a series of incidents in the book of Acts where the word dream is not exactly used, but what happens is actually very similar and appears to be something like God speaking in a dream. You see that in Acts chapter 16. 
where, set, where Luke writes, Passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, Cross over to Macedonia and help us. After he'd seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So God spoke to Paul through a night vision. Similarly, Acts 18, 9 and 10, the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent for I am with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. Now the above gives us sort of a high-level but brief overview of dreams in the Bible. We didn't cover every passage or principle, but we did cover enough to have a pretty elementary understanding of dreams and visions in the Bible. In our overview, what we have here is a pattern of God speaking in the Old Testament and the New Testament to his people. It's obviously not a frequent, regular occurrence, but rather a rare and special happening. Tomorrow, during the show, we will go deeper into our primary question, does God still speak to people with dreams and visions? But I will close today with the beginning of an answer to that question, and it's from gotquestions.org's Michael Hoodman, and uh, we're also going to have a few dream stories from Charles Spurgeon. This is what Michael Hoodman says, and uh, Mr. Hoodman, I hope I'm not butchering your name. I apologize. I love gotquestions.org. This is what he says. I firmly believe that the Bible is the perfect and complete word of God. Amen. It contains everything we need to know to follow God's will for our lives. While it does not give specific instructions related to the personal situations and decisions we face, it does provide all the wisdom we need to be able to make right judgments in those situations and decisions. With that in mind, I do not see any reason for God to, quote, supplement his word with additional revelation. But at the same time, there's nothing in the Bible that indicates God never speaks today. I do not know the mind of God, and therefore I do not complain, a claim to know every reason why God might say something to someone. What I do know is this, if God were to speak today, what he said would be in perfect alignment with his word. God does not contradict himself. He does not change his mind. Compare any supposed message from God with God's word. Reject the message if it's in contradiction or disharmony with God's word. If you think God has spoken to you but are unsure about it, ask him for confirmation. Seek wise counsel from men and women of God whom you respect and trust. So we'll talk about that a little bit more tomorrow. Again, does God still speak in dreams and visions? I think the answer is a qualified yes, because I don't see anything in the Bible that says, behold, the change is coming where I'm not going to do this anymore. Other people do, and that kind of touches on the topic of cessationism. I completely agree, however, with Michael Hoodman that God will not speak in contradiction to his word, and we hold the word of God over every dream, vision, prophecy, etc. as infinitely more authoritative in terms of knowing the will of God and the truth of God. So I'm going to give you a couple of Spurgeon illustrations, then we'll finish reading our um our passages of the day. Now, Charles Spurgeon, if you know about him, he is one of my ministry heroes, pastor in London, England in the 1800s. Spurgeon was a cessationist, but he was an interesting cessationist, interesting in the fact that 
God gave him a few supernatural prophecies and other things like that. And he tells some very interesting stories about dreams. For instance, this one, which is found in his book, Flashes of Thought, which said, I read a story the other day of an elder of a Scotch kirk. A kirk is a church in Scotland who at the elders meeting had angrily disputed with his minister until he almost broke his heart. The night after, he had a dream which so impressed him that his wife said to him in the morning, You look sad, John. What's the matter with you? Well, I am sad, said he, for I've had a dream that I had hard words with our minister, and he went home and died, and soon after I died too, and I dreamed that I went up to heaven, and when I got to the gate, out came the minister and put out his hands to welcome me, saying, Come along, John, there's nary a strife up here. I'm so glad to see you. By the way, I'm not trying to read this with a Scottish accent. I wish I could, but my Scottish accent is really, really, really abysmal. So, continuing the story, the elder went down to the minister's house to beg his pardon and found in very truth that he was dead. He was so smitten by the blow that within two weeks he followed his pastor to the skies. And I should not wonder but what his minister did meet him and say, Come along, Jan, there's nary a strife up here. Brethren, says Spurgeon, why should there be strife down here? Let us love each other, and by the fact that we are co-heirs of the blessed inheritance of Jesus, let us dwell together as partakers of a common life, soon to be partakers of a common heaven. Now, that's a good story, and one of the things it tells us about Spurgeon's theology of dreams is that he appears to be quite open to God still sending dreams, not to reveal scripture, not to give us something more authoritative than the word of God, but to encourage us and point us to Jesus. Next one, he says, I have heard of a man who had a dream in which he thought he stood at the gates of heaven and his wife with him. She went in, but the porter shut him out, saying, The other day you said to your wife, You may go to church and pray for us both. Now she shall go to heaven for you both, and you must stop outside. Is that not just, asked Spurgeon? There must be a personal hearing and listening to the word for yourself. I ask you, do not make yourself absent from the hearing of the word, for faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word about Christ. Of course, that's Romans ten seventeen. Yet another dream story from Spurgeon, this one from The Sluggard's Reproof, which is a sermon he preached in the late 1800s. Myconius, the friend of Luther, had made up his mind that he would not help Luther, but that he would keep in a monastery, quiet and alone. The first night he went there, he had a dream to this effect. He dreamed that the crucified one appeared to him with the nail print still in his hands, and that he led him away to a fountain into which he plunged him, a fountain of blood. He beheld himself washed completely clean, and being very rejoiced thereat, he was willing to set down, but the crucified one said, Follow me. He took him to the top of the hill, and down beneath there was a wide-spreading harvest. He put a sickle into the man's hand, and he said, Go and reap. He looked around him and he replied, But the fields are so vast, I cannot reap them. And the finger of the crucified one pointed to a spot where there was one reaper at work, and that one reaper seemed to be mowing whole acres at once. He seemed to be a very giant taking enormous strides. It was Martin Luther. Stand by his side, said the crucified one, and work. 
He did so, and they reaped all day. The sweat stood upon his brow, and he rested for a moment. He was about to lie down when the crucified one came to him and said, For the love of souls and for my sake, go on. He snatched up the sickle again, and on he worked. And at last he grew weary once more. Then the crucified one came to him again and said, For the love of souls and for my sake, go on. And he went on. But once he dared to pause and say, But master, the winter is coming, and much of this good wheat will be spoiled. No, said he, reap on. It will all be gathered in before the winter comes, every sheep. Sheaf, I will send more laborers into the harvest. Only do thou thy best. So now I think the crucified one takes me to the brow of that hill, says Spurgeon, and yourselves with me, and shows us this great London, fill in your city name here, and says, see, this great field is ripe for the harvest. Take your sickles and rip it, reap it. You say, Lord, I cannot. Nay, he says, but for the love of souls and for the sake of the crucified one, go and reap. Well, that's powerful. Tomorrow we will read some more, and we will find that Spurgeon is not 100% on board with uh, prophetic-type dreams. In fact, he gives quite a few cautions about that. But for now, we will leave our question up in the air. That's fine, because we don't want to elongate these episodes. But join us again tomorrow for a deeper discussion. Does God still send dreams and visions to his people today? Job chapter 4, verse 1. This is Job speaking, and he says, Isn't each person consigned to forced labor on earth? Are not his days like those of a hired worker? Like a slave, he longs for shade. Like a hired worker, he waits for his pay. So I have been made to inherit months of futility, and troubled nights have been assigned to me. When I lie down, I think, when will I get up? But the evening drags on endlessly, and I toss and turn until dawn. My flesh is clothed with maggots and encrusted with dirt. My skin forms scabs and oozes. My days pass more swiftly than a weaver's shuttle. They come to an end without hope. Remember that my life is but a breath. My eye will never see anything good. The eye of anyone who looks on me will no longer see me. Your eyes will look for me, but I will be gone. As a cloud fades away and vanishes, so the one who goes down to Sheol will never rise again. He will never return to his house. His hometown will no longer remember him. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you keep me under guard? When I say my bed will comfort me and my couch will ease my complaint, then you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I prefer strangling death rather than life in this body. I give up. I will not live forever. Leave me alone for my days or a breath. What is a mere human that you think so highly of him and pay so much attention to him? You inspect him every morning and put him to test every moment. Will you ever look away from me or leave me alone long enough to swallow? If I have sinned, what have I done to you, watcher of humanity? Why have you made me your target so that I have become a burden to you? Why not forgive my sin and pardon my iniquity? For soon I will lie down in the grave. You will eagerly seek me, but I will be gone.
Oh my, the, the emotion uh, and power of Job. It's just, it's just astonishing. Don't let it fill you with hopelessness though. Wait till the end. Wait till the end. Mark chapter 11, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered them just as Jesus said, and so they let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And he went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. They came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temples and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called the house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. Early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, Have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Then they came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question and answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, well, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things.
Romans chapter 11, verse 1. I ask then, says Paul, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to take my life. But what was God's answer to him? I have left 7,000 for myself who have not bowed down to Baal. In the same way, then, there's also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it's not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. What then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent continually. I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their transgression brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them, for if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch, and if the roots are holy, so is the branches." Now, if some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, don't boast that you're better than those branches. But if you do boast, you don't sustain the root. The root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Don't be arrogant, but beware, because if God did not spare the natural branches, he won't spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in, because God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from your native wild olive tree, and against nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, huh, be grafted into their own olive tree? I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you will not become conceited. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. 
regarding the gospel, they are enemies for your advantage, but regarding election, they are loved because of the patriarchs, since God's gracious gifts and calling are irrevocable, as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy through their disobedience, so they too have now disobeyed, resulting in mercy to you, so that they also may now receive mercy." For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgment, untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever been given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him. And to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I can't think of a better ending than that. So, to him be the glory forever. Amen.